Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks for tuning in to episode 22 of Crime and Beauty. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode covering the Sunset Strip murderers. I certainly found it a very interesting topic, rather gruesome, and unfortunately, this next case will be as well. But this time, we're moving over to Japan in 1989, and we're covering the murderer Sosumo Miyazaki. And forgive me for any issues with pronunciation uh, of Japanese names and terms, but I will do my best. So sources today include good old Wikipedia, as always, as well as an article by Charles Whipple called The Silencing of the Lambs. Let's get started. So Tumo Miyazaki, also known as Otaku Murderer, or the little girl murderer, was a Japanese serial killer, cannibal, child rapist, and necrophile who murdered four young girls in Tokyo and Satema Prefecture between August 1988 and June 1989. Miyazaki abducted and killed the girls aged from four to seven in his car before dismembering and sexually molesting their corpses. His crimes included not only kidnapping, murder, and necrophilia, but also vampirism, the preservation of body parts as trophies, and taunting the families of his victims. So he's a real loser, this one. He was arrested in July 1989 after being confronted while taking nude photographs of a young girl. He was diagnosed as having one or more personality disorders, but was determined to be sane and aware of his crimes and their consequences. Ultimately, he was sentenced to death in 1997 and was executed by hanging in 2008. His extensive collection of pornography and horror videotapes was intentionally misrepresented as being anime-related by the media and political parties wanting to ban anime and manga, which caused a moral panic against otaku in Japan. And otaku is a Japanese term for people with consuming interests, particularly in anime and manga. His victims included four-year-old Mary Kano, seven-year-old Masami Yoshizawa, four-year-old Erika Namba, and five-year-old Ayaku Nomoto. Sotumo Miyazaki was born prematurely in Tokyo on August 21, 1962. His family operated a regional newspaper company and were well-known in the area. His grandfather and great-grandfather had served on the town council. At birth, he weighed only 4.9 pounds, and the joints of his hands were fused together, making it impossible for him to bend his wrists upwards. This deformity haunted him from early on, and I will post a picture. He's got some very scary-looking hands, especially considering what he turned out to be. When he was five years old, a classmate teased him about his funny hands. In family photos after that, he never showed his hands, and his eyes were often closed. By the time he reached elementary school, Miyazaki was a quiet, lonely child who seemed utterly incapable of making friends. He studied hard and became the first student from his junior high school to pass the entrance exam to Meidai Nakano High School. He commuted two hours each way every day for three years, but eventually began to lose interest in his studies. Instead of joining his fellow students, Miyazaki would retreat to a quiet corner to work on another home-drawn comic book. 
he increasingly blamed his deformed hands for his inability to achieve anything concrete. His plan to enter Meiji University, with which the high school was affiliated, major in English and become a teacher, was over by his final year, when he ended up 40th in a class of 56, with grades so poor that he failed to receive the customary recommendation to the university. And still, he blamed his handicap. Miyazaki settled for a photo technician's course at a junior college and, after graduation in the spring of 1983, went to work at a printing plant owned by an acquaintance of his father. After three years, during which he'd saved more than 3 million yen, which is a little less than 28,000 or around 73,000 in 2021 money, he moved back to the family home where he shared with his elder sister a two-room annex to the main house near his father's printing business. His father was a workaholic interested in collecting political video clips and the latest cameras. And his mother, Raiko, also worked, but tried to compensate for Sutomu's issues by buying him gifts such as the Nissan Langley sedan in which two of his victims later died. If I tried to talk to my parents about my problems, they'd just brush me off, Miyazaki confessed to police later. I even thought about suicide. His two younger sisters, Setsuko and Haruko, merely found him repulsive. Only his grandfather, a highly regarded man in the community, seemed to take a genuine interest in him. His name was Shokichi. Miyazaki avoided women his own age, yet his sex drive was stronger than average. During college, he took still and video cameras to tennis courts to take crotch shots of female players. He also soon tired of adult porn magazines. He complained that they blacked out the most important part. So by 1984, he had disgustingly turned to child porn, which shows everything since obscenity laws ban the showing of pubic hair, not sexual organs, which is so twisted and stupid. In May 1988, three months before the first murder, Sutomu's beloved grandfather died. His grandfather had been his only warm adult relationship, and the death marked the breaking of his last bonds with society. He later said that he even ate some of his grandfather's cremated bones, a claim that a literary critic and witness for Miyazaki's defense believes. Quote, he wanted to reincarnate his grandfather and believed that this reincarnation would not be complete if any of his grandfather's body remained. After his grandfather's death, Sutomu became further estranged from the family, and at one point, his youngest sister caught him peeking at her in the bath, and when she yelled at him, he burst in and smashed her head against the bathtub. Later, when his mother suggested he spend more time at work and less with his videos, he exploded and beat her. His father had long since given up trying to talk to him. Sutomu later explained, I felt all alone, and whenever I saw a little girl playing on her own, it was almost like seeing myself. What does that even mean? That is so weird. And unfortunately, the first of those little girls to die from Miyazaki's attention was Mary Kano. Shortly after 3 p.m. on August 22, 1988, four-year-old Mary Kano left her home in the Aruma Village apartment complex in Saitama to play at her friend's house. As Mary made her way through the complex earlier that afternoon, a Nissan Langley sedan had pulled up nearby, and Sutomu climbed out of the driver's seat. He asked her, wouldn't you like to go somewhere where it's cool? Mary nodded and, taking his hand, skipped toward the car. While Mary played happily with the buttons on the radio, the car went down National Highway Number 16 towards western Tokyo. Just before reaching Mashushino Bridge, it swung right onto a road leading towards Itsukaichi, 
An hour and a half after it left Aruma Village, the car came to a halt on a narrow dirt road in the woods near the Shintama Power Station. Sutomu and Mary got out of the car and walked down a mountain path fringed by Hinoki and Suji trees to where the hiking trail towards Comine Pass begins. The cicadas were in full cry and the mountain doves cooed in the stifling heat. After 20 or 30 minutes, the two sat down at a spot some 20 meters off the path. Mary was tired and began to sniffle. Sutomu put his hands on her throat, thumbs on the larynx, and squeezed the life from her tiny body. When she finally went limp, he reverently undressed and fondled her. Then he laid her out as if in repose, bundled up her shorts, panties, shirt, and shoes, and walked unnoticed out of the forest and back to his car. At 6.23 p.m. after she failed to return, architect Shigeo Kano, the father, struggling to quell his panic, called the police to report that his daughter was missing. After her disappearance, police squad cars with loudspeakers patrolled the streets, warning parents to keep their children in sight at all times. Although it was officially tagged as a missing person case, the police started the investigation as a murder right from the beginning. Eventually, the police spent 2,930 man days interviewing people around Mary's home and sent 50,000 posters with Mary's pictures to police, train, subway, and bus stations across the nation. Despite their efforts, nothing came from it. Not even police dogs could pick up the girl's scent. Two boys said they had seen Mary walking behind a man toward the nearby Aruna River. In the paper, the Asahi Shimbun interviewed a 38-year-old housewife who had spotted Mary with a stranger. Apart from the age, the description was accurate. Late 30s, about 5'6", round and pudgy face with curly hair and white slacks and a white summer sweater. There was only one other potential clue. A few days after Mary disappeared, Yuki Kano, Mary's mother, received a postcard with a haunting message after she expressed hope in a news bulletin that her daughter was still alive. There are devils about, it read. The police at the time dismissed the note as an act of a crank. The fruitless hunt for Mary Kano eventually dwindled after four weeks. In September, Sayama Hikari Gaukin Kindergarten began its new term without her. So sad. Since the police had received no demands from a kidnapper and found no body, her file, categorized under missing persons, lay dormant. But many parents in the area were taking no risks. From the time Mary disappeared until Miyazaki was caught, parents led their children to kindergarten every day, recalled one mother. Six weeks after Mary's disappearance, Miyazaki struck again. Driving through Hano, Saitama Prefecture, on the afternoon of October 3, 1988, he spotted Masami Yoshizawa, a seven-year-old first grader, walking along the roadside. He coaxed her into the car, drove to the hills above Comine Pass, the scene of the first murder, and strangled her to death. He then stripped her and sexually abused the corpse, much like Mary. At one point, her body shuddered involuntarily, and Miyazaki, frightened, ran back to his car and drove off. He left her remains less than 100 meters from where the bones of Mary Kano lay, whitening in the sun. After she was reported missing later that night, local search parties fanned out across the area. Soon, Masami's face stared down from hundreds of posters issued by police, who subsequently spent over 2,300 man days interviewing local residents. Again, no clues to the girl's whereabouts were found. Masami's home was only 13 kilometers from Mary's. The police were suspicious enough to compare the two cases, but had neither leads nor bodies. 
Masami too was declared a missing person. This murder had upset Miyazaki, but he would kill again before 1988 was over. The December 12th murder of a four-year-old from Kawago, however, would be different. First, Miyazaki would never be caught. Second, the body would be discovered soon after the act, setting off a murder hunt that would compel police to reassess the disappearance of Mary and Masami and confirm the worst fears of many Saitama residents, that there was a serial child killer on the loose. Miyazaki never displayed much concern for life. He later said casually, I've killed cats, threw one in the river, did another in with boiling water. He also throttled his own dog to death with a strand of wire. His absorption in a video world, explained a doctor who later evaluated him, removed his consciousness from reality. Everything became an item to him, including people. The little girls he killed were no more than characters from his comic book life. Erika Namba was returning from a friend's house when Miyazaki lured her into his sedan. She was crying by the time he pulled into the parking area at the Youth Nature House in Naguri. He told Erica to undress in the back seat, then began to photograph her, the strobe flashing in the dark. A car drove by, its headlights sweeping momentarily across Miyazaki's face. Erica began sobbing again, and he grabbed her by the throat and straddled her, holding her kicking body down with his weight as he strangled her. By 7 p.m., his third victim was dead. Miyazaki carefully wrapped the body in a sheet and put it in the trunk. Then he disposed of her clothes in the woods behind the parking area and drove off. His mind clearly wasn't on the road. As he turned one corner, one of the front wheels slipped into the gutter and the car was stuck. So he switched on the hazard lights and disappeared into the dark woods with the sheet-wrapped body in his arms. He returned with a crumpled sheet to find two men standing by his car. Casually opening the trunk to put the sheet away, he explained his problem to the men who then helped lift the car out of the rut. He got in and without a word of thanks, sped away. You'd think that these two men might suspect something. This time, the Kawago police immediately connected Erika Namba's disappearance with that of Mary Kano and Masami Yoshizawa, and the Saitama Prefecture Office set up Special Operations Center to solve the three missing persons cases. The next day, a worker from the Naguri Youth Nature House found some of Erika's clothes, and hundreds of police began combing the area. Meanwhile, the PTA at Erica's kindergarten pasted handbills around the apartment complex where the Namba family lived. Sadly, police found Erica's corpse the next day, its hands and feet bound with nylon cord. The murder scene was 50 kilometers from Erica's home, a journey of about an hour and 45 minutes. 500 riot police explored the woods for more clues but found nothing. The two men who helped Miyazaki with his car on the night of the murder came forward to identify it. Thank God. They correctly recalled that the car had Western Tokyo plates, but misidentified the model as a Toyota Corolla II, an era that police realized only after they had checked out more than 6,000 Corolla IIs. This blunder deprived investigators of what could have been their strongest lead. Seen in the macabre light of the recovery of Erica's body, the disappearance of Mary and Masami pointed strongly toward a more serious crime. All the girls were from the same prefecture, all live within 30 kilometers of each other. As soon as they found the body of the third girl, they began to treat it as a serial murder case, said a police journalist. Police found that the families had something else in common. They had all been bothered by strange phone calls. The phone would ring, but when answered, the person on the other end would say nothing. If they didn't pick up, the phone would ring for about 20 minutes. And less than a week after his daughter's murder, 
Shinichi Namba, like the Kanos, received a postcard. It was formed from kanji characters cut from magazines and newspapers, then photocopied and enlarged to conceal their origin. It read, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. The hunt for Marion Masami led nowhere. No clues were unearthed that shed light on Erica's murder. Hardly a day passed when television reports didn't cover the cases. After the discovery of Erica's body, the atmosphere of apprehension among Saitama's parents and teachers turned to alarm. An editorial at the end of 1988 caught the mood of the subdued panic. In the end, it read, We must depend on the police. So say, at our plea. Investigators, redouble your efforts. Miyazaki would not kill again until the following summer. But he was still busy. At about 6 a.m. on his way to work on February 6th, Shiji O'Connor, Mary's father, found a box on his doorstep and called the police. Along with ashes, dirt, fragments of charred bones, and ten baby teeth, it also contained photos of a child's shorts, underwear, and sandals, and a single sheet of copier paper with five words on it. Mary, bones, cremated, investigate, prove. Miyazaki had returned to the death site as he had done several times and removed the remains. The ten small teeth found among the ashes were immediately turned over to the legal division of the Tokyo Dental University for examination, where Dr. Kazuo Suzuki concluded that they probably did not belong to Mary. After a police press conference announced this finding, Suzuki changed his mind to the agony of the Kano family. His examination was mistaken, he said. The remains might be Mary's after all. Then a police forensic expert gave his verdict on the 220 grams of bone fragments. They were not only human, they were Mary Kanos. Miyazaki, avidly following news reports, heard only the original verdict, that the teeth were not Mary's, and immediately sat down to write. On February 11th, a three-page letter arrived at the Kano home. The society desk of the Shahi Shimbun also received a copy, along with a Polaroid-type photo of Mary. The letter was entitled Crime Confession and signed Yuko Amada, a pun on Now I'll Tell. I put the cardboard box with Mary's remain in it in front of her home, it began. I did everything, from the start of the Mary incident to the finish. I saw the police press conference where they said the remains were not Mary's. On camera, her mother said the report gave her new hope that Mary might still be alive. I knew then that I had to write this confession so Mary's mother would not continue to hope in vain. I say again, the remains are Mary's. How nice of you to put her mind at ease. Dick. The confession, of course, caused an uproar. The next day, the Saitama police finally classified the Mary Kano case as a homicide and set up a special center to investigate her abduction and murder. Handwriting experts examined the confession note but could not establish the author's sex. Over half a million police leaflets quoting the confession were delivered to houses in the areas where the girls lived. The police, however, correctly identified the snapshot of Mary as, the one, as one taken with a Mamiya 6x7 camera, like those used by printers, another clue that was perhaps inadequately followed up. They also rightly concluded that the box was the double-walled corrugated kind often used to ship camera lenses. The typeface on the postcards was determined to have come from a photo typesetter and copied on an industrial copier. Police later refused to comment on whether or not they had launched an investigation of printing shops in the area. My guess is they didn't. The Kanos waited three weeks before the police officially announced that the box contained the remains of their daughter. 
The box contained almost an entire skeleton of a four or five-year-old girl, and two of the teeth matched perfectly with x-rays of her dental work. On March 11, 1989, over seven months after she was declared missing, Mary was finally laid to rest. Her hands and feet didn't seem to be with the remains, said Shiji O'Connor at the funeral. When she gets to heaven, she won't be able to walk or eat. Please return the rest of her remains. The nightmare wasn't over. The Kanos return home from the funeral to find another letter from Yuko Omada. This one, labeled simply Confession, chronicled the changes Miyazaki had observed in Mary's dead body, which is disgusting. He said, Before I knew it, the child's corpse had gone rigid. I wanted to cross her hands over her breast, but they wouldn't budge. Pretty soon, the body gets red spots all over it. Big red spots. Like the Hinomaru flag. Or like you'd cover your whole body with red honko seals. After a while, the body is covered with stretch marks. It was so rigid before, but now it feels like it's full of water. It smells how it smells. Like nothing you've ever smelled in this whole wide world. In spite of hints offered by Yuko Amada, the police were unable to pick up Miyazaki's trail. Some observers have interpreted the letters as gloating at the society that he felt had shunned him. A professor later disagreed. None of it had any social meaning for him. It was just like playing a video game, you know, plus one point for causing a sensation. He wasn't trying to gain society's recognition. He had a society in his mind of which he was the nucleus. And I'm inclined to agree with that interpretation. By the summer of 1989, Miyazaki was growing restless. He skipped work more often to spend hours sitting cross-legged in his room, editing his precious videotapes. On the first day of June, he saw girls playing near the Akashima Elementary School and coaxed one of them to take her panties off, which is so infuriating when to kill this person, even though he's already dead. As he began to photograph her, some neighbors thankfully spotted him and chased him off. Despite this close call, Miyazaki butchered his four victims five days later. On June 6, he left his bungalow for the tennis courts at Ariaki near Tokyo Bay, but the courts were closed. In a nearby park, he found five-year-old Aoku Namoto playing alone. Casually removing the lens cap from his camera, Miyazaki approached Aoko and asked her to pose for pictures. He then took several shots until Aoko got used to him. Let's take some shots inside the car, he coaxed, leading her to his Langley Nissan. Miyazaki parked some 800 meters away as Aoko bounced in the back seat. He handed her a stick of gum. The young girl commented, as he handed her a stick of gum, the young girl commented on his deformed hands. Enraged, Miyazaki pulled on a pair of vinyl gloves. Here's what happens to kids who say things like that. He growled, seizing her by the throat. She kicked and kicked, but went limp in four or five minutes, he later confessed. To make sure she was dead, he taped her mouth and tied her hands with vinyl rope, then wrapped the body in the sheet and put it in the trunk of his car. Then he took the body home, stopping at a video shop in Koenji to rent a camera. The house was dark when he parked next to the two-room bungalow. He waited two hours and carried the tiny corpse inside, where he stripped the clothes and wiped it with a towel. And honestly, there's more details after this, and I just cannot. It's If you want to read it, you can read it, but I don't want to go over it. It's disgusting. Afterwards, he bound up the hands and feet with a nylon cord and covered the body with three sheets. Two days later, the odor of the decomposing corpse became unbearable. Although he was right in believing the police were nowhere near identifying him as the little girl murderer, Miyazaki knew he had to dispose of the body. With a knife and a saw, he hacked off the cadaver's head, hands, and feet to hamper identification. 
Then he hid the torso near the public toilet at Hano's Miyazawako Cemetery at night, four days after the murder. He roasted her hands in his backyard, ate some of her flesh, and tossed what remained, including the skull, into the woods, a 23-meter hill in front of his house. Realizing the risk of having some of his remains so near his home, he retrieved and hid them two weeks later in a bag in the storeroom behind his bedroom. Later, he scattered the bones in the woods, then burned the hair, the clothes, and the blood-stained plastic bags and sheets. Five days later, after police had distributed 10,000 handbills with Ayoko's description and picture, the little girl's mutilated torso was discovered at the cemetery. Despite Miyazaki's butchery, the remains were quickly identified. The blood type and chest size matched those of Ayoko Nomoto, reported missing by her mother at 8.40 p.m. on June 6. The stomach contents also matched Ayoko's last meal. In the end, Miyazaki's gruesome career was cut short by a citizen, despite the massive police forces pitted against him. On Sunday, July 23, 1989, two sisters were playing near a public wash stand in western Tokyo when a young man stopped his car and got out. You stay here, he told the elder nine-year-old, cajoling the younger child toward a nearby river. But the older sister ran home for her father, who sprinted back to find his daughter naked, with a young man focusing a camera between her legs. He grabbed him and knocked him down. The man twisted away and ran to the swampy edge of the river to escape. Then, incredibly, he returned to his car where the police, who had already been called, apprehended Sutomu Miyazaki on the charge of forcing a minor to commit indecent acts. Yay, he's caught. The police clearly believed they had found their serial killer. One Saitama housewife remembers how house-to-house police questioning in her apartment complex ended abruptly on the day the news broke, though nothing was officially revealed of the suspect's involvement in other crimes. Even then, television reports were saying he was a serial killer, she recalled. The news media were so convinced that Miyazaki was the man that they beat the police to the Miyazaki home, where they filmed Sutomu's room. Seventeen days later, Miyazaki confessed to murdering Ayoko Nomoto, whose skull was found the next day in the hills of Okutama. The other confessions followed swiftly, first the murderer of Erika Namba, then Mary Kano, of whom video clips were discovered among the 6,000 tapes in Miyazaki's lair. By mid-September, after preliminary psychological tests by NPA psychiatrists, they concluded that he showed no immediately apparent disorders, by mid-September, after a preliminary psychological test by NPA psychiatrists concluded that Miyazaki no- showed no immediately apparent disorders, he confessed to the fourth of the little girl murders. On September 6, Masami Yoshizawa's remains were found in the forest near Komine Pass. The half-chewed bones of Mary Kano's hands and feet were discovered nearby a week later. Her father's pleas for the return of his daughter's hands and feet had finally been answered. Until Miyazaki's arrest and subsequent confessions, the police were far from identifying their murderer, despite an intense and costly investigation. It's almost impossible to catch a murderer when there's no relationship between them and the victims. It becomes just a matter of luck. In Erica's case alone, more than 600 calls from the citizens of Hano kept the police occupied for days, so there was no lack of effort. In a 1989 interview with the Tokyo Shimbun, Katsumi Miyazaki regretted that, quote, I didn't pay more attention to the feelings of my son. After his arrest, Miyazaki had written a furious letter to his father, blaming him for everything. To his mother, however, he was more conciliatory. Mother, I've caused you so much heartache, he wrote once. Then he added, don't forget to change the oil in my car or it will get so you can't drive it. 
Oh, you mean the murder car? Great. Thanks, son. Miyazaki's trial began on March 30th, 1990. Often talking nonsensically, Miyazaki blamed his actions on Ratman, an alter ego who he claimed forced him to kill. He spent time during the trial drawing Ratman in cartoon form. The seven-year trial focused on his mental state, of course, at the time of the murders. Under Japanese law, people of unsound minds are not subject to punishment, and the feeble-minded are entitled to reduced sentences. Miyazaki's father refused to hire a lawyer for his son. It wouldn't be fair to the victims, he said. The public defender's office looked long and hard before finding two lawyers, Junji Suzuki and Keiji Iwakura, who were willing to take the case. Suzuki agreed because of his vehement opposition to the death penalty. The defense team's case revolved around the claim that Miyazaki had only limited sense of responsibility for his crimes, that he was unable to choose between right and wrong. The court's first action was to assign a team of six psychology professors from Keough University to examine him. When they filed their report, they said Miyazaki was fully capable of taking responsibilities for his actions. His attorney, Suzuki, disagreed, saying, The more we see of him, the more we think he lives in a different world. We felt the report did not establish Miyazaki's mental capabilities beyond reasonable doubt, so we asked for a second evaluation. Fortunately, the judge agreed. A team of three Tokyo University professors then evaluated Miyazaki. One doctor listed his obsessions as including pedophilia, necrophilia, sadism, fetishism, and cannibalism. Another believed Miyazaki was a pedophile first and a murderer second, and that killing was an extension of his interest in little girls, a way of possessing them. The third said, I don't see how Miyazaki could be judged for responsible for his actions. He shows no signs of being aware of the gravity of his crimes. He has no sense of guilt. Even the judge seems to agree that his first psychological testing was very inadequate, which is why a second testing was ordered. This ended with the 1997 conclusion that Miyazaki, though suffering from multiple personality disorder and extreme schizophrenia, was still aware of the gravity and the consequences of his crimes, and therefore was accountable for them. Shortly thereafter, he was sentenced to death by hanging, and back in 1994, his father actually committed suicide. At one point, Sutomu voiced fear of being hanged, the standard execution method in Japan, requesting instead American-style lethal injection. His life in prison was essentially the same as when he committed his murders, spending days reading manga and comic books and watching anime on a small television in a cell. Not sure why that was allowed, but anyway. His death sentence was upheld by both the Tokyo High Court in 2001 and the Supreme Court of Justice in 2006. The Minister of Justice at the time, Kunio Hatayama, signed his death warrant and Miyazaki was hanged at the Tokyo Detention House on June 17, 2008. Ultimately, his arrest and publication of his crimes led to the media dubbing him the otaku murderer, in reference to otaku culture. His killings caused a moral panic against otaku, accusing anime and horror films of making him a murderer. Various newspapers claimed that Miyazaki had retreated into a fantasy world of manga as a result of his neglected upbringing. These reports were, of course, disputed. A critic suspected the released information was playing up to the public stereotypes and fears about otaku, with another saying that his collection of pornography was probably added or amended by a photographer in order to highlight his perversity. Sharon Kinsella asserts that large collections of manga and videos were typical in the rooms of youths living in the Tokyo area at the time. 
And this actually reminds me very specifically of Ted Bundy and his BS excuse that pornography is what led him to be a, a crazy serial killer, murderer, rapist. This is such BS. It's one of those things where like, you know, just having an interest in something doesn't make you do these types of things, right? And this is a person that would blame all of his behavior on everything else, his deformity, his, you know, peers not accepting him, his family not having enough time for him. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It sounds like he is just a spoiled, severely disturbed person, but very much legally sane because he did try to conceal over and over again his crimes. These poor little girls, I can't even imagine the fear that must have been going on there. And I'm quite impressed that the police force, you know, unfortunately, even though it didn't work until a citizen actually caught him, but clearly the community was all rallying together to try to to try to find this person and protect their little girls, but very, very scary. But for years, I've been sort of fascinated by this case. And I think that the the thing that really drew me in first in, in terms of learning about it was this picture of his deformed hands. I mean, they are really, really scary. They're like vampire hands. As I said, I will post a picture, but that is the case of uh, Sutomu Miyazaki, the otaku murderer or the little girl murderer in Tokyo, Japan between 88 and 1989. Okay, and now for something beautiful. It's a new product that is in my arsenal. I recently got my hair done and I have very thin, fine hair that does not do well with volume. And my hairstylist, after giving me a cut color, used this product and it just very simply added so much volume in a natural way without looking greasy or too um, too uh, hairsprayed by any means. And it's not a hairspray. It's actually a product by Bumble and Bumble, which is a fantastic brand. Um, and it's their thickening cream contour. So it's essentially a styling cream for definition without deflation. This lightweight, pliable styling cream adds lived-in texture and definition to full-bodied styles. So honestly, it kind of reminded me when she, when my hairstylist used it on my hair, it reminded me of um, how the Victoria's Secret models used to look before their fashion show, even though I am glad that that's done because that was not good for everybody's body positivity. But, um, but man, their hair always looked really great. It's that sort of... Um, lived in bedhead but really beautiful so you can use it if you have fine or thick hair but again I, if you have fine thin straight hair I mean it works wonders um, but you can use it of course if you have wavy hair and what you do is you basically take a very small amount between your palms and um, you rub it to warm it up a little bit and then you sort of run through dry styled hair and like I said it just gives you a nice little bit of volume without um, leaving any sort of like residue and it smells great. Bumble and Bumble is a cruelty-free brand and they don't test on animals. They're also free from parabens, flalates, mineral oils, and formaldehyde, which is nice, but highly, highly recommend. I will be using this probably forever now as, as a styling product just to give a little more zhuzh, if you will. All right, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 22. It was a weird one. 
Um, next week I'll probably pick something that's a little bit more light just because we've dealt with a lot of murder and you know dealing with anything relating to children is awful and sucks and um, still I mean I think it was a case that's been very interesting and haunting for a long time and um, also is very fascinating from the perspective of what culture can do and how that might affect somebody. My personal belief is you know liking a certain genre of media doesn't make you a killer doesn't not make you a killer it doesn't do anything right if you're a bad person you're a bad person anyway um you can listen to crime and beauty on podbean.com at crimeandbeauty.podbean.com on spotify google amazon apple all the things um feel free to shoot me an email with any sort of case suggestions or just general feedback um positive criticism would be nice um but emphasis on the positive we don't need to ruin my ego um you can email that at crime and beauty podcast at gmail.com and thanks for listening until next time stay beautiful Thank you.